I'm Bob Roberts. Known around here uh, primarily as Elizabeth's husband. I'm a philosopher by trade, but I dabble in theology. I'm not an expert on literature or poetry or prayer, um, but um, but I I think I think about things. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I think about prayer and poetry and and character. Um, I taught for 16 years at Wheaton College and uh, retired from Baylor University in 2015. Uh, last March, I published a book, which I'm shamelessly advertising, uh, called uh, Recovering Christian Character, the Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, that's relevant. It's not totally irrelevant, as you might think. But uh, it's, it's relevant because Kierkegaard actually said, that he was a kind of poet. And he thought that the, this recovery of Christian character that he was engaged in uh, promoting was uh, depended, uh, in a way, on the poetic um, work, the, the poetic aspect of his work. So um, the title of this talk, Prayers, Poetry, and the Formation of Virtue, suggests that we're going to try to relate three things. Uh, <coughs> prayers, poetry, and uh, the formation of virtue. Um, so on your handout, you'll see I've written down what I take to be some uh, properties of, uh, of poetry or poetic discourse more broadly. Um, versification, one, one, the Psalms have, uh, have that character, right? They're, they're written out in verses. A uh, regular meter, the Psalms, at least in English, don't have that. Um, I, I don't know whether they have it in Hebrew. Somebody can tell me about that. There are symmetries within the, within the poetry <coughs> that are characteristic of poetry. So you've got balanced, uh, you know, this and that. And that's certainly in Hebrew poetry. Uh, figural speech, metaphor, analogy, that's just all over the place in poetic language. And that's and that's also a property of everyday language. We, we use metaphors all the time, um, but maybe they're not quite as beautiful <laughs> in many cases as they are in the poets. Um, concision, density of thought, these are the, the poems tend to, to be compacted. And, uh, and then a little later down here, we have um, perception guiding heart vision, um, the, this compaction is, um, <clears throat> is often some kind of vision of how to see things, how to, uh, how, to, how to think about yourself or how to think about some object, maybe a tree or something that the poem might be about. Um, and certainly that's, that perception guiding heart vision is, uh, is characteristic of the poetry of the, uh, of the prayer book <clears throat> and of the Bible. Um, beauty, elegance, repeatability, memorability. The uh, poems tend to be memorable in two senses. They're memorable in the sense that they're worth memory, <laughs> worth remembering. Uh, they have this kind of in integral beauty and, and uh, density. But they're also memorable in the sense that they're relatively easy to memorize. They 
this, the symmetries and so forth make it, make it uh, easier to, um, to um, memorize them. So, and, and that memory is going to be very important when we think about the uh, prayers in the prayer book. Um, there are lots of poems in the Bible. The Bible is just full of, full of poetry. Um, Mary sings her Magnificat upon hearing of her assignment to bear the Messiah, and she models her poem on Hannah's much earlier one in San, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10. The book of Psalms is nothing but poems. Uh, much of the writings of the Hebrew poets, uh, prophets, are poetry. The Proverbs in the book of Proverbs can be regarded as, as kind of little, little poems. Um, in Paul's letters to the Philippians and the Colossians, he includes beautiful poems about Christ's being and work on our behalf. Um, and these are, uh, they, they, they may not appear to be poems uh, because they just, they just run right into the text, in, at least in the Greek text and, and in some of the English tech, uh, translations. But, um, but uh, if you look at them carefully, as N.T. Wright does, on the one that's also on the handout, that's the Colossians passage, uh, you'll see that he, uh, he puts it in, he versifies it, puts, puts it into verses and, and stanzas. And, um, and you see that that, that works. Uh, and he comments about that. Part of growing up as a Christian is learning to take delight in the way God's truth, whether in physics or theology or whatever, has a poetic beauty about it. So he's really saying that spirituality uh, includes a kind of Christian aesthetic, you might say, an aesthetic in which we see a kind of symmetry, a kind of beauty, a kind of poetic uh, reality in the gospel message, in the whole history of salvation, um, in, um, in God's work in creation. The, there's, there's so much beautiful kind of uh, regularity, and, but it's kind of mixed with irregularity in the, uh, in the creation. And so it's, it's part of being, uh, growing up as a Christian, becoming a mature, Christian, that um, that we appreciate that, that 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 impact us, that we be sensitive uh, to that uh, aspect of <coughs> of the world. In a short essay uh, titled "God of Poets," my colleague David Jeffrey uh, writes this, and he quotes a long passage from from the um, uh, Book of Revelation at the beginning. He says. I'll start with that. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. His head and his hairs were like white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp 
two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And, and Jeffrey goes on, What are we to make of this very Hebraic, Hebraic pat, pattern, a rhetorical device marked by the gnaw consecutive, the string of ands, uh, and the persistence of Hebrew poetic speech in the mouth of the Lord, even here at the end of the Greek New Testament. At the least, we are obligated to see that one of the many ways in which God's thoughts are above our own, his ways higher than our ways, is his preference for a mode of discourse which is the very opposite of simple indicative prose or reductive proposition. It is exalted, not casual, though some much prefer plain speech in a series of commandments that could be mastered in a system, the God whose voice booms through the prophets in Job, in the vision of John, as in the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, does not so limit himself. Figural speech, riddling aphorisms, paradoxes, melismatic Hebrew parallelism, metaphor and story upon story are what we get instead. Caveat lector. It turns out that in neither testament, when he is disclosing his nature and purpose, does the Lord of heaven and earth always talk like we do. In our own culture's terms, God does not talk like a lawyer, a philosopher, or even a theologian, let alone like a TV talk show host. Very often, however, he speaks like a poet. We might wish it otherwise or be lulled into imagining that the word of God should be coming to us in pretty much the lingo of the coffee shop or the full authoritative patter of the newscast, but we would be hard pressed to find much warrant for that in scripture. The fact that God speaks poetically when the issues are most weighty suggests that appreciating his poetry might be an essential element in our knowledge of God, namely that with poets, such as King David and John Donne, we praise him not only as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but as the poet of poets, the originary poet, the one who writes the world. That, that seems like a, a, an extended confirmation of the point that, uh, that N.T. Wright was making. And it, uh, it's a kind of justification, biblical justification, you might say, for the poetry that we find in the prayer book. So that's poetry, let's say that. Um, uh, the next topic then would be character. What is, what is character? Um, and I think character, it's it basically two things, two dimensions. Uh, one dimension is correct thought. So wisdom is, the, is a sort of a fundamental feature of good moral character, good spiritual character. Uh, understanding, understanding of the world, understanding of yourself, um, understanding of your neighbor. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of it. Having the, you might say having the concepts right, so you're, 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 you're seeing accurately. <laughs> um, the other dimension, which, which is just integral 
with, for, with the dimension of understanding, is um, caring. You've got to care about what's good. Uh, so the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right? Him, he, he who puts the kingdom of God first. Um, so you've got to think rightly about the kingdom of God, and then you've got to love it. You've got to want it. You've got to yearn for it. That's, the, uh, the, the, that's basically what character is, good character. Um, and that's what we're trying to become in the process of growing as Christians. We're trying to become people who think straight, and people who care correctly, <laughs> you know, care about what is truly um, worth caring about, and and care less, much less about things that are less worth caring about. So, uh, this uh, leads us to talk about what um, prayers are. <laughs> Prayers are basically um, pieces of discourse or language in which, so, so we're, they have to do with thinking, right? I mean, when, when you pray, you think about something. Um, but they are, um, they're, they're characterized by wanting something. By, by asking for something, by, by uh, desiring something. Um, and the, the word, uh, our word pray, comes from a Latin word precari, um, which uh, means both um, to pray, but more basically it just means to ask for, to entreat, to, uh, to, um, to express to ask somebody for something. Um, and um, not all the prayers, uh, not all prayers actually ask for something. Last week we, we did, uh, we, or no, it was two weeks ago, uh, and um, gave a talk about the, um, the collects. And uh, the collects do actually ask for something every time. <laughs> right? every, every prayer asks for something. Um, that's part of the form, according to Anne. Um, but, uh, but prayers are also uh, confessions. Uh, they're expressions of praise. Um, they're thanksgivings. In, in addition to asking for things, often when we confess our sins, we also ask God for forgiveness. Uh, but So asking is maybe more prominent in the prayers than any other part, and it's maybe more, more universally present in prayers. But it's not the only th thing. And uh, the, um, yeah, so when Brad uh, gave us a, a way of praying the first psalm, which is not a, which is not a prayer really properly, it's more of a, an expression of wisdom, uh, a, a meditation on how to be a happy person. Um, what he did was to turn each of the uh, parts of that psalm into a request, a request that, that we, that the, the 
reader of the psalm should um, make. Um, uh, so, so the prayers, prayers have this. Oh, I was going to say, you know, they not—they aren't all strictly speaking requests, or they, but they do all have this caring about them, right? So when you praise God, you're you're showing how much you care about uh, his his goodness and his greatness, and when you thank God, you are uh, you're showing your uh, how, how much you care about what God has given you, and also you care about the fact that God gave it to you. <laughs> Right? So there's a kind of love relationship with, that's, uh, that's expressed with God. Um, so all prayer, then, it really does turn on the, uh, this, this uh, caring. Prayer, then, has, these, has this form of wisdom or, or of character in that um, it's thought and it's caring integrated together. Now, um, so, I, 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 there's this nice little uh, saying. Uh, it, it's, a, it's inside a, uh, a, uh, a sonnet uh, by Michael O'Shea. And the sonnet is a, it's a set of four sonnets which are a dialogue between George Herbert, the, uh, the Christian poet, and, and Michael O'Shea. And so the, you get one, one, uh, um, uh, one sonnet is in his voice and the other sonnet is in Herbert's voice, imagine, right? So one of the sonnets in Herbert's voice says, this is a, an apology, you might say, for poetry. <laughs> but he, he talks about Proverbs. So uh, Herbert says, my thoughts could stray too strained or undefined, but Proverbs teach me density that schools such thought to churn and thicken in the mind. So. <laughs> So it's, it's because the, the, the poem or the prayer is so dense, right? It's like cream, and you churn that cream, and you turn it, and you stir it, and you mix it with, well, you don't mix it literally, but you, you stir it, and, uh, and then there's a precipitate, right? The, uh, the precipitate is butter, this delicious concentrate. <laughs> and, that, and that's what you are, right? You, you, you stir and you churn and you, uh, you think about this prayer. You say it again and again. You, uh, you, you take it into your, into your mind, into your soul. You duplicate that, that concern, that desire that the prayer expresses. You, you take that desire on as a part of your own character and it precipitates into... Christian spirituality. <laughs> That's the kind of the idea. I think it's a kind of a nice little picture. 
all that churning and and uh, so um, I thought we'd look at at um, four the four Advent uh, the four collects for Advent as examples of um, prayer uh, of the prayer book. And um, those are on page 598, 599 of your prayer book. So the first Sunday of Advent has this. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. This prayer is just chock full of figural speech and balanced symmetries. The, uh, the opposition, the works of darkness and the armor of light casting off the works of darkness, putting on the armor of light. Now in this time of mortal life and in the last day, great humility, glorious majesty, visit us, visit, Christ visited us and, become, and then comes to judge both the living and the dead. It's not only conceptually and imagistically, but also orally. That is to say, for your ears, it's elegant. It has emotional force, elevated sentiment. The sentiments being penitence and hope, right? So this, you're, you're, uh, if you pray this authentically, you feel penitence uh, about the uh, works of darkness <laughs> that, uh, that you need to cast off, and, uh, and hope for the... Uh, For the, the that by God's grace you can put on the armor of the light. Um, uh, so the prayer guides the eyes of the heart, to use that phrase from Ephesians 1. It expresses a panoramic vision of the age in which we live. We have been visited in great humility by one who will come back to us in glorious majesty. Uh, it's concise, it's densely, densely condensed. It's only 87 words, and yet you get this, this panorama of salvation history uh, packed into those, into those 87 words. That's the sort of thing you can, you can uh, meditate on indefinitely, right? Uh, year after year, you, you pray this prayer, and uh, it, it gradually forms your mind and, and your heart. Um, now to, to pray that prayer authentically, I mean, you, 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 ha you have to really get into it, right? You need to, you know, to, to, in order to get this 
spiritual benefit from it, you need to you need to in, indulge the prayer, you might say, or, or become uh, re really adopt it as a as a state of your mind. Um, so you have to adapt the the desire that's in that prayer, and you have to incorporate the thought. And so it takes some concentration, right? It, it takes some attention. If you just pray that prayer as a kind of, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that prayer again, I remember that one, yeah. Uh, if, if that's the attitude, then you, you're not going to get the spiritual benefit. So you need to, you need to be serious and uh, earnest in, your, uh, in, the way you, in the way you take it in. Okay, the second, uh, does it, maybe somebody would like to say something about this. Um, let's see, we've, we've, got, we've used up 25 minutes. We can, uh, we've got lots of time, I guess. Uh, so if you have anything you want to say about this particular prayer, or okay, we can go on to the second one. Uh, second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, <coughs> who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. I think this prayer is a little bit less richly poetic than the first one, uh, the first uh, Advent. Um, but it uses the metaphor, two, two really strong metaphors. Uh, one is the no, metaphor of digestion, right? When we, when we, when we digest our food, uh, the food goes into our bodies and it actually becomes a part of our body. <laughs> and so, the, the idea here is that we're praying that scripture, well, through, all, through this reading and marking and uh, inwardly digesting, that it actually becomes a part of our mind. Uh, we're praying for that. We're asking that. And then the other metaphor um, is that of an embrace, a hug, right? You, when you love somebody, you hug that person and you... And you hold the person tight, and, the, uh, and it gives you, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it gives me anyway, it gives me a sense of being, a, a kind of sense of security in that relationship. It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm okay, <laughs> sort of. Um, and it gives me, and it's just, it's just an expression of, of, the, of the love that, that I have for the for the other person, um, and so when we embrace our hope, that's what we're doing with the hope, right? We're we're taking our this hope that we have uh, of everlasting life, and we're embracing it. We're we're hugging it to ourselves. We're we're uh, feeling security in that in that hope. So that's that's the other thing we're praying for. Uh, praying that we might digest the, the scriptures and that we might embrace this hope that um, that we have 
in the scriptures. Um, third Sunday of Advent. O Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for, your, for our salvation. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign one God, now and forever. So in this prayer, we're praying for the current ministers of our church. And uh, the prayer refers back very obviously to a uh, poem of Isaiah. Um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough way shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And in uh, the third chapter of Luke, John the Baptist quotes that, that poem from, from Isaiah uh, to describe his own ministry. He, he is into road work. He's uh, preparing the way for uh, the, the Messiah to come. And in praying the collect, we ask that our own ministers follow in the steps of Isaiah and John the Baptist in doing this kind of road work. And the prayer book adds its own bit of poetry with the lovely parallelism of turning the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just. Isn't that a lovely uh, turn of phrase? Um, turning the hearts of the disobedient towards the wisdom of the just. And that, that reflects sort of the, it, it re, re, reduplicates in a way that the first uh, um, Advent uh, colic uh, about the works of darkness and the, and the um, armor of light. Light is associated with wisdom, right? And, and, uh, uh, so only with the wisdom of the just will God's people be ready to give the, give the Lord a properly jubilant welcome when he arrives for the second time. By virtue of our likeness, as John says, um, we will see him as he is. We will meet him with excited joy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're so good at that in your sermons. You you put those those sort of really uh, really down to earth <laughs> uh, analogies in, and it just it's it's very impactful. So I commend your sermons to everybody for that for that purpose. I mean, that, and there's, there's poetry working in the, uh, in the sermon, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, can, I don't, I, 
what one of them doesn't come to mind right right now, but uh, the, I, I can, I've talked to him about this in the past already, so he, he knows what I'm talking about. Um, all right, uh, let's see. Let's we've got one more, um, one more. Let's see. Last. Of course, I'm glad. Okay, this one. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. We have uh, here again the, the metaphor of stirring. I don't, I don't know whether... <laughs> Well, O'Shiel got it from that, but um, but now it's directed to God. We're asking God to stir up His power. Um, this plea seems to be something like a plea for a Pentecost among us. We need a performance-enhancing drug, a boost of power from outside us to en to enable a successful outcome of the race that we're running. Um, there's another homely metaphor, not so maybe. Not so legitimate. <laughs> I mean, enhance it power, you know. Um, uh, the urgent imperatives stir up and let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Strongly expresses the desire dimension of the prayer. This is, this is an urgency. Uh, there's an urgency here. Uh, and this collect, like the first and third of Advent, combines the themes of penitence and hope that are central to the Christian character and wisdom. So, um, you know, hope, hope is regarded as a character trait in, uh, in Christian thought. And, um, and penitence, too. And those are, those are virtues that Aristotle never heard of, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, but they're and they're they're dependent on the uh, on the particularities of the Christian uh, the Christian story, the Christian way of thinking about the world. You know, uh, Mary commented. Uh, I think it was in her first talk um, in this series about how the uh, 2019 prayer book. Uh, Corrected some, I think you said small unorthodoxies or, or. Uh Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jim, were you about to say? Yeah, I was just going to comment on this um, stir up your power, Lord, because this, this, the placing of the thing is just a few days before Christmas. So while
right? Yeah. And you said the sons of ABC and it's so appropriate for remaking cultures and problems. Yeah. Just it. Yeah. Uh, James. seems to me that posture sort of reduplicates attitude in a sense. So, so when you kneel, you're in a different, uh, it, it tends to give you a kind of, uh, what do they call it, feedback <laughs> um, that, um, that tells you, I am, I am humble <laughs> or something like that. Uh, so you kind of Duplicate in your in your bodily sense, your sense of your of your body, the um, the attitude that you're trying to adopt in the prayer, uh, or that the prayer is expressing. Uh, uh, did you have something to say? Humiliating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I would just I would just comment that uh, there's a difference between humbling yourself and and being humiliated, uh, at least in in ordinary uh, English, right? We, we, humiliation is a very um, a very nasty thing that we don't and we don't do it to each other if, if we're if we're careful, right? We we. To humiliate, well, yeah. I mean, uh, we do talk about Christ's humiliation in uh, on the cross, and that was humili- definitely clearly humiliating. Um, but I think that, yeah. I mean, maybe there there is a, certainly a, a, an embarrassment, a shame associated with with being humiliated uh, that is not necessarily present with being humbled. When you humble yourself, uh, you don't necessarily feel ashamed of yourself. Uh, but, but it's true that in penitence, in penitence, we are, we are ashamed of ourselves, right? We're, the, the, works of, the works of darkness are shame, shameful. Um, so that's, that's correct. Oh, okay. Bob, this has certainly been very rich, and you've given us a lot to think about in terms of how these, this poetry and these words can stir up um, our desires to align ourselves with God. So next week we have Jim Leonard is going to be speaking on morning prayer as a way of paying attention. So I think that also will be really excellent. And I also wanted to let you know that November thirteenth. Our bishop is going to be here, so he is going to be sharing during this time. 
So encourage everyone to come. And that also just puts our schedule back one week. So I was scheduled for November 13th. I'll now be sharing on November 20th. And then we'll conclude the series on November 27th. So thank you all for coming. And thank you again, Bob. Thank you.